MRAP Snack. Throughout the pandemic, it has been very hard to find any silver linings. I think we are all looking for some silver lining to hang on to. And I have had the good fortune of getting to know some folks in emergency medicine that I didn't know before, mostly virtually, and learning from them about different topics within our field that I hadn't focused on prior. And one of those amazing folks in emergency medicine is Dr. Craig Spencer. Craig is the director of global health in emergency medicine at New York Presbyterian and Columbia, where he's also an associate professor. He's also been extremely active writing about the pandemic for the New York Times, The Atlantic, Washington Post. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Craig also has a couple of young kids at home to take care of. And I think with all of that together, it's hard to know how Craig even has the time to sit down and talk about what we're going to get into today. But Craig, I'm really appreciative that you have some time for us. Well, I'm extremely excited to make that time. The reality is I just don't have the time, right? As a parent, you know, you just like carve it out from somewhere else and like, you know, do whatever you can to make a few minutes. But these last couple of years have been tough for everyone, for EM physicians, from a wellness standpoint, from a burnout standpoint, but for parents as well in many respects. So I think it's actually just amazing that I'm still standing and able to sit here and uh, make a coach and thought, no, but super excited to talk with you. I know over the past couple of years, we've been texting a bunch and going through studies and thinking through like what comes next. Uh, it's fun to do this. Yeah, it is fun to do this. And you're right. I think this has been so hard for all of us. And when we were chatting about many of the things that you've been doing and the ideas, and I felt that your voice needed to be on MRAP at least a little bit, just for people to get to know what it is that you've been doing out there. And one of the big things that you've been doing, not just for the last couple of years, but throughout your career has been work in global health. And over the last couple of years, it's been hard to travel, especially with young kids, but you've been continuing to do that global health work in terms of how you've been advocating for us to pay attention to global health, especially during a pandemic. What I was hoping you could do to start is kind of share with the listeners some of the work that you've already done. Yeah, I would love to. And so much of it has highlighted really how we've prepared or failed to prepare for what's happened over the past couple of years, which for me, watching this happen kind of in slow motion has been both disconcerting, but also has really given me a lot of energy to think about how we digest what's happening now and how we make sure we do better in the future. But a lot of that comes from spending the past decade working in global health and humanitarian health. I finished my residency out in Queens. I went weeks and weeks without speaking English. I feel like I did my residency basically in global health, everything from mainland Chinese to people from South America, to all over the world out in Flushing. And I really wanted to be in that environment where I saw a diversity of people and pathologies, but also kind of understood the importance of culture of disease, how we understand disease, the history of disease, how that all impacts how people present to the emergency room. And, you know, we can pick some of that up as folks that work in emergency rooms where we see a diverse population. But for people like myself, I wanted to do more. I wanted to travel. I wanted to understand where we can make an impact as global health practitioners. So I did a, um, a fellowship at Columbia in what was international emergency medicine at that point and now global health. And, you know, for a couple of years, I tried to find my footing. I did a lot of epidemiology. I did some field work in the Congo and East Africa, I made a lot of friends in Burundi, but ended up working with Doctors Without Borders over the past seven or eight years. Um, and my first mission was in West Africa during the Ebola epidemic in 2014. And I showed up in September 2014 at a point, if people recall, when we just had you know massive numbers of people getting sick with Ebola. We were having trouble containing it in West Africa, but really around the world. And when I showed up, 
you know, the Ebola treatment center started bursting at their seams. We didn't have enough places to put people. And at the same time, we just didn't have really good treatment algorithms because this was a disease that killed, you know, 50 to 90% of the people infected. And we can talk a little bit about, you know, what I learned from that. What I also got from that experience was Ebola myself and learned a lot as a, as a patient for 19 days. That taught me more about being a good doc than anything. After that, I worked in, in Burundi in East Africa, a small country in the middle of a civil conflict doing trauma care. You know, we'd get 80 to 100 patients that would show up at the door of our trauma treatment center in the capital in the span of five to 10 minutes. And it was all about rapid triage, how many chest tubes you could put in in 10, 15 minutes, making sure you found the reds, you found the blacks, you found the greens, you reassessed. And then more recently, I've been working on a migrant search and rescue boat in the Mediterranean, where we've been you know, helping people at sea, lost at sea in these rickety old, unseaworthy boats, providing medical care and bringing them to safety. Those have been most of my experiences. But over the past couple of years, I've been spending more time as um, a director on the board of directors for Doctors Without Borders USA, which has been really incredible to see that 30,000 foot view of how we make decisions about global health, humanitarian health, how we engage, how the decisions that we make in boardrooms and from a fundraising perspective or from an operational perspective here in New York or in Europe, how those impact the people who are ultimately touched by our interventions and need the medicines and the interventions that, that we're able to provide. So it has been a whirlwind of the past 10 years. So much of it kind of gave me some insights into how we approach and thought about COVID, but I'm happy to, to delve into those issues a little bit more. I think at some point we're going to have to get into each of those experiences and really tease out the things that you took out of those, the experiences that you had. I think sharing those with the listeners are going to be really important, but what I, I kind of want to do is take that 30,000 foot view, all of those different things that you've experienced, the clinical work outside of the United States and how it comes back to your clinical work in the United States, because the vast majority of your time is spent in an inner city hospital in the United States. So how do you take things like dealing with Ebola in West Africa, dealing with trauma and conflict in Burundi, having your own episode of Ebola in the United States? How do you take all of those and say, what do I take away from this? What do I bring to my job day in and day out when I'm going to work up in Washington Heights at Columbia in your regular job? How does this really influence you, affect you? How does it make you a better doctor? And Craig, what we're trying to do here is influence and convince some young listeners that this might be the path that they want to take. Well, let me give you a couple examples. So working in East Africa in the middle of a civil conflict a couple of years ago, you know, ASAP and everyone else assumes that we as emergency providers know how to manage a mass casualty incident, right? If there are 50 people that come in, a train derails or something else happens, like that is part of our scope of work to be able to do that and to do that well. But how often do we do that? Almost never, hopefully, right? And so when that does happen, what you find is a lot of disorganization. We don't have the chains of command and the hierarchies that we think we need. Maybe that practice wasn't real enough. Or, you know, for me, I feel incredibly comfortable and confident to lead a mass casualty response because I did it nearly every day for three to four months. Now, that might not be incredibly important as a selling point to a chair or something, but let me tell you, when that happens, and that will happen to many of us, having people with that experience is so valuable. You know, having 80 people at the door and knowing that you're gonna have to find the five or 10 of those folks that need immediate life-saving intervention. They might not be the ones that look the worst, but they might be the people that need that chest tube that have, you know, blood filling up the, you know, the pleural cavity or people that need immediate stabilization because they have shrapnel that's causing some uh, intraperitoneal bleeding. You know, the, the ability to do that and to manage a team 
is something that we just don't get training in. And it's something that I did every single day, in addition to things like putting in probably over the span of three to four months, hundreds of chest tubes, but also teaching newly minted docs from the local community who didn't have any trauma training, whose residencies were shut down because of the conflict, teaching them that, you know, ABCs of trauma were not antibiotics, take a break and send someone for a chest x-ray. Like, you know, when I showed up, there wasn't, because there was no ATLS, right? Like there wasn't that formal training that we take for granted here, right? Like 40, 50 years ago in the US, think about what, you know, the immediate trauma response was and bringing that to places, implementing that. So that three to four months later, when I leave, those folks are all incredibly capable of managing an airway, incredibly capable of identifying the sickest folks to implement life-saving interventions. And for me, that involves a lot of things like thinking about how you teach differently. My biggest problem in Burundi was I was trying to teach everyone eFAST. How do we do an ultrasound examination for trauma to see who needs to you know, go to the OR? Here in the US, we do this so many times and it's pretty rare for a lot of us to get a true positive, right? We do a lot of true negatives. My problem in Burundi was that everyone was a true positive. Like 90 something percent of the patients we saw were true positives. So I had to think about how I taught ultrasound differently, trying to get them more true negatives and trying to, you know, cause just like our residents will be like, ah, is there a little bit of blood there? I don't know. For them, it was like, there's no blood. This is, this is weird. What's going on? There's gotta be somewhere. And so it just taught me a little bit different on how I need to approach one, my capacities and my skills here and make sure that those are kind of relevant, but also how do we teach and how do we best teach and get into different didactic models? And that has been really incredible for me. When we talked about this offline before we got on together, you kind of narrowed it down to three big things that you learned from these experiences. And I think, again, this is a little bit of an overview of everything and it's, it's generalizations, but I think those three are, are really powerful. And I was hoping that we can go through each of them one at a time. The first one that you kind of keyed in on is that even though we may not be optimally prepared for these experiences, we do have a skill set that fits global health work. Right. Everyone writes in their EM residency application that they want to be ready for whatever comes through the door, right? Like that's what, the, that's what emergency medicine is all about. But a lot of the times, you know, we work through algorithms or we work through things that are kind of set in place. It's pretty rare that we're confronted with something, especially after a couple of years of practice, that completely confounds us, right? Like we're always humbled, but you know, we have these incredible skills as EM docs. And just as an example, when I was working in West Africa during a Ebola outbreak, you know, this was a time at which we still didn't know a lot about this disease. Outbreaks until that point had resulted in the majority of people dying. And in the few months in 2014, when we started to respond, we started to learn a little bit more about clinical management, symptomatic management, how we save some lives with fluids, stuff like that. But we still didn't have algorithms for how to manage things like a pregnant patient, for example, who survived Ebola. Because up until that point, none ever had. So what do you do with a woman who's now convalescent, who's saying she wants to go back to her family and there are eight kids at home and you're concerned that there's still viral persistence in protected sites like the placenta. She goes home and has a miscarriage. How are we going to manage that? So getting together with caseworkers and community folks and talking to family and trying to find novel solutions to things like that is exactly, you know, what we in emergency medicine want to be doing, right? Like, how do you manage these really difficult scenarios for which there is no precedent? And I think that we're uniquely prepared to do that, but I think we're uniquely prepared to do that when we're there. And as emergency medicine docs, we have the skills, the training, the ability to kind of look into the unknown and chart a path forward. The problem is, 
and this is true in West Africa and many other places, is that there's just not enough of the resources, human resources, physical resources, to provide the necessary and needed care that people deserve, especially in things like Ebola outbreaks. For me, when I had Ebola, I was treated at Bellevue Hospital. They took perfect care of me. I'm lucky and I'm happy to be here today, and it's largely because of their care. I spent 19 days there, and on staff at Bellevue Hospital are more physicians than there were in 2014 in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, the countries most impacted by the Ebola outbreak, combined. So in one hospital, in one city, there were more doctors than there were in all three of those countries. So, you know, we had a struggle getting people to go, but we have the skills. There are people like us that, you know, especially now are used to wearing PPE, are used to working without algorithms, looking into that space and trying to fill the void. And I think that is where we as emergency medicine docs are incredibly well suited. How about getting into some of the lessons that you took away from that trauma experience in Burundi? Because, you know, we talk about those mass casualties, as you said, they are usually singular events lasting for a couple of hours, not singular events lasting for a couple of months, which is really what you had going on. So when you look at an experience like that, what do you take away from that that can come into play with your daily work? It's all about having systems, right? And part of it is about, you know, going through and practicing and making sure that people understand what their roles are. But it's about having clearly defined roles and hierarchies, making sure that those are clear for everyone who's involved, practicing those and making that practice as real life as possible. What we did every single day in Burundi is we drilled, we got ready, we made sure that the triage nurse was out front and she knew what our criteria was for reds, for yellows, for greens. We talked about where our spaces were. We talked about the containers that we had and made sure that we had all of the contents in each container to make sure that they were able to provide care for a certain number of people. And then in the moment, you know, we would always have a debrief after, like, what did we learn? What worked well? What didn't? But I think the really big thing that I took away from that experience was the incredible resilience of the human body that we in the U.S. with this culture of like, do everything that we can. We don't want to miss absolutely anything at all. You know, scan them. It's a lot safer. Send these tests. It's a lot more conservative. I worked in Burundi with a couple of docs and bare minimum resources. We didn't even have outside of the operating room. We didn't have a vent. Um, we didn't even have nasal cannula oxygen. We had oxygen concentrators. And in the span of taking care of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of folks with grenade shrapnel that had been shot, that had machete injuries, we lost two people the whole time. Two folks died, one of which I'm convinced would have died in the U.S. as well, even with level one trauma care. One other person that probably could have survived. But the human body, I, I've been taught so many lessons about the resiliency of the human body and you know, what it is capable of doing that we just often don't give it enough credit for. And we often feel like we need to intervene and we need to, you know, the things that we do are absolutely incredible. Access to MRIs and CTs and cancer drugs, et cetera. Those are all amazing things. But the most amazing thing in our treatment and our workup with our patients is resiliency, you know, actual peoples themselves. Throughout the last couple of years, Craig, you have been an extremely active voice during the pandemic not just for what we need to do in the United States, but really a voice for what we need to do globally. And I'm, I'm wondering with the experiences that you had prior to the pandemic abroad in that global health role, what were the lessons that directly applied when this COVID pandemic hit our shores? The one thing that I've been worrying about for quite some time and wrote about in 2017 and 2018 was that we weren't prepared for a pandemic. That's clear. I think anyone 
can look back retrospectively and, and say that with great confidence. But it was pretty clear years ago, based on funding streams and ways that we thought domestically and responded to things, even like Ebola, we treated that as primarily a domestic threat from early on, as opposed to the international problem it was. We took a really long time to engage. We treated it as more of a biomedical imperative that we responded, as opposed to the sociocultural phenomenon that it ultimately was. And that hindered our ability to respond. It also you know, put in place a response network that when COVID hit, you know, we just didn't have the thinking, the experience, the people to respond correctly. And the way that I, I framed it is like this, you know, in response to the West Africa Ebola epidemic, a lot of universities, a lot of the best academic medical centers in the country made it nearly impossible or outright impossible to go work in West Africa. They were worried about what would happen. You'd have someone like me who'd get sick. You have to send out a message to everyone that, you know, may have a calf scheduled in three months from now that you know, like this person wasn't on our campus. Don't worry. And it made sense from kind of like that legal protective perspective. Then the result was that there were very, very few people like myself from the U.S. that had any experience working with PPE when it actually mattered. There were very few people that had any experience thinking about how we flow patients and how we triage and how we do all these things that we all had to learn on the fly here in March and April of 2020. And anyone that had worked in West Africa had had that experience, felt comfortable in PPE, knew the importance of having a PPE buddy so that, you know, throughout your shift, you weren't the one responsible for your PPE. It was that other person to make sure there wasn't a hole in your goggles or, you know, because after 10 hours of not drinking water, just being exhausted, we make mistakes. And these are all things that were just second nature for anyone that had worked in West Africa too few of us had. And I think it really hurt us, especially early on in March and April of 2020 and how we responded. It seems that we continue to not learn that lesson that what's going on around the globe directly affects us. We are so interconnected. Those lessons learned from sending docs, from, from docs working in other places and learning these lessons, then coming back here and teaching them to others. There are so many different places that we fall short. We continue to fall short. And I think that's why many of us in emergency medicine, in medicine in general, I've really appreciated your voice because I don't work abroad. That's not a thing for me. I don't do global health. I don't have those experiences. I don't see myself getting those experiences anytime soon. And so I don't have that perspective, the perspective that you have of it's not just about the care that I can provide to those people there, which is obviously extremely important, but it's also about everything I learned that I bring back to improve our system that perhaps we have been far too short-sighted on that we can learn, that we have a huge amount that we can learn from the experiences going on in other countries. Absolutely. I think about the time I spent on a boat in the Mediterranean providing medical care to migrants that we had rescued. And these are folks that had left Libya after months of being raped, beaten, tortured, abused, came with these you know, absolutely horrific illnesses, injuries, had been shot, etc. And we would pick them up and provide medical care. And on the exact same day, the following things happened. We were able to pull a couple hundred people off of a boat that had sunk. A few minutes later, we were on our, our rescue boat and went around and saw this woman in labor. I was able to get on the boat and help deliver a baby in the middle of the Mediterranean. Baby survived. We were able to get this baby up onto the boat, deliver the placenta. Everything worked out well. Later that afternoon, one of the incredible nurses that I was working with, he had been a nurse for longer than I'd been alive and uh, had taught the choking class on board and was choking on bacon. And, we, you know, without thinking, I got up, you know, I'm like, like, he was fine. All three of these things happened in the exact same day. And I thought, man, we have the coolest job in emergency medicine, right? Like, even without thinking, like, all of those things are things we do on a daily basis. But 
the real cool thing that I took away from that experience was that like those skills that we get of how do you triage a thousand people on a boat and find the five to 10 sickest people, the guy that is septic from an abscess, like we don't have that, right? We, we do the needle in a haystack every time we sign out. We say, who's the sickest one here? Who's going to crump? We had to do that every single day on a boat. Those are skills that I learned that I brought back. But the most important thing that I learned from that whole experience was the humanity. It's just like understanding that people around the world matter just as much, deserve the exact same treatment, regardless of where they're from, why they're fleeing, what's happening. And also just the importance of like what family and friends mean when their loved ones are standing in front of you as a provider. And I know it's pretty often that, you know, a family member comes to us and says, ah, this is what's going on. It doesn't sound like it's all that reasonable. Sometimes we write it off. But when we were working on a boat in the middle of the night, you know, the thing that I would do with hundreds of people sleeping around, a lot of the migrants that we had picked up, I would just go to whoever was awake and say, hey, who amongst your crew is sick? And they would immediately find the one person that was tachypnic, that was tachycardic, that was unwell, that I wasn't able to do just through kind of walking around and that taught me the importance of listening to basically whatever family say, the importance of humanity and approaching all of the people that we see in the exact same way. And I think that has been the most important takeaway of working for over a decade in some pretty tough environments with some, some pretty tough illnesses. Craig, I want to close up by talking a little bit directly to those who may be a little bit aspiring into global health. We have a lot of trainees, a lot of medical students who are thinking about this, who listen to MRAP. What do you take away? I mean, aside from the fact that you took Ebola, and, and we're in 19 days in the hospital. Let's put that one aside. That might not be yeah, don't the do best that. advertisment. Yeah. <laughs> don't do that. There's vaccines and treatments from... now. So, you know, maybe it's a little <laughs> bit different. But aside from that, what would you say to those who are thinking about this, who are thinking that this might be where they want to invest their career to really build their skills? That's a good question. You know, I went into medical school to be a cardiothoracic surgeon because I wanted to make money. In social science class in fifth grade, I got up, uh, I got up the microfiche, which no one listening to this probably knows what the hell that is. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, cardiothoracic surgeon makes the most money. I dedicated my life from that moment to being a CT surgeon. I knew everything about the heart. I had a C7 fracture when I was a kid from hockey. And I was in the hospital talking to the EM doc about the S in the T waves and all this stuff. And she's like, you're 11 years old. What's wrong with you, weirdo? It's like, oh, I love this. And I went into medical school, went on a trip to the Dominican Republic, saw the impact that a physician could have, saw how different it was from kind of the medicine that was practiced here in the US in a very different way and committed my life to emergency medicine and global EM at that point. And the big takeaway I think is that like, sure, you might not make as much money as a CT surgeon, that, especially if you're working four to six months abroad, largely for free as I did for nearly a decade. But the value to yourself and to your colleagues and really to your personal and professional advancement is so much greater than anything else that you can get. The other thing that I think people should know is like, what is your intention for this? Like, what do you want to do with this? If your goal is to make global health into, you know, a passing hobby and what you want to do is spend a week every year going somewhere and working in a project that doesn't have longevity or roots in a community, you're probably going to do more harm than good. And I know a lot of folks really want to find a way to give back. And there's you know, really good intentions, but a lot of those kind of volunteerism programs go into places and don't have sustainable long-term follow-up. So giving out, you know, antihypertensives for a week or two isn't going to help much. Be part of programs that are making an impact and that are impacting the communities, not just providing an opportunity for folks to get an experience. 
I got an MPH training that completely changed the way that I thought about health from an individual to a collective phenomenon, gave me resources and tools. You know, not everyone has, I guess, the desire or the time or whatever it may be to do a fellowship. But if that's what you really want to do, if you need mentorship, if you need those skills, then it's definitely the best resource that you will have. And we're lucky as a field to have some of that flexibility to do stuff like that and to have those training options, many of which incredible ones exist. Okay, this is great. This is a great intro to the things that you have done, the places that you have been, what you're doing now. And I want to dive more into each of these topics. I, I would love to get you back on to talk about your experience with Ebola, your detailed experience dealing with that trauma surge over and over again in Burundi. And I also would love to get you back on to talk about your work with Doctors Without Borders, which I think we know as an organization, but we may not know everything that that group actually does. And I think it'd be great for our listeners to hear. So I'm really glad that we started this conversation off and I'm, I'm really excited to get you back on to talk about it more. I'd love it. And thanks so much for bringing this up and making sure we had this discussion so that people know that there's more than just what happens in our ED that affects us and impacts us and teaches us. There's a whole world of learning out there. So thanks so much. 